Chapter Twenty Seven of the Blythedale Romance. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Blythedale Romance by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter Twenty Seven. Midnight. It could not have been far from midnight when I came beneath Hollingsworth's window, and finding it open, flung in a tuft of grass with earth at the roots and heard it fall upon the floor. He was either awake or sleeping very lightly, for scarcely a moment had gone by before he looked out and discerned me standing in the moonlight. "'Is it you, Coverdale?' he asked. "'What is the matter?' "'Come down to me, Hollingsworth,' I answered. "'I am anxious to speak with you.' The strange tone of my own voice startled me, and him probably no less. He lost no time, and soon issued from the house door with his dress half-arranged. "'Again, what is the matter?' he asked impatiently. "'Have you seen Zenobia?' said I, since you parted from her at Elliot's pulpit. "'No,' answered Hollingsworth, "'nor did I expect it.' His voice was deep, but had a tremor in it. Hardly had he spoken when Silas Foster thrust his head, done up in a cotton handkerchief, out of another window, and took what he called, as it literally was, a squint at us. "'Well, folks, what are ye about here?' he demanded. "'Aha! Are you there, Miles Coverdale? You have been turning night into day since you left us, I reckon, and so you find it quite natural to come prowling about the house at this time o' night, frightening my old woman out of her wits.' and making her disturb a tired man out of his best nap. In with you, you vagabond, and to bed. Dress yourself quickly, Foster, said I. We want your assistance. I could not, for the life of me, keep that strange tone out of my voice. Silas Foster, obtuse as were his sensibilities, seemed to feel the ghastly earnestness that was conveyed in it, as well as Hollingsworth did. He immediately withdrew his head, and I heard him yawning, muttering to his wife, and again yawning heavily, while he hurried on his clothes. Meanwhile I showed Hollingsworth a delicate handkerchief, marked with a well-known cipher, and told him where I found it, and other circumstances which had filled me with a suspicion so terrible that I left him, if he dared, to shape it out for himself." By the time my brief explanation was finished, we were joined by Silas Foster in his blue woolen frock. "'Well, boys,' cried he peevishly, "'what is to pay now?' "'Tell him, Hollingsworth,' said I. Hollingsworth shivered perceptibly, and drew in a hard breath betwixt his teeth. He steadied himself, however, and, looking the matter more firmly in the face than I had done, explained to Foster my suspicions and the grounds of them, with a distinctness from which, in spite of my utmost efforts, my words had swerved aside. The tough-nerved yeoman, in his comment, put a finish on the business, and brought out the hideous idea in its full terror, as if he were removing the napkin from the face of a corpse. "'And so you think she's drowned herself?' he cried. I turned away my face. "'What on earth should the young woman do that for?' exclaimed Silas, his eyes half out of his head with mere surprise. "'Why, she has more means than she can use or waste, and lacks nothing to make her comfortable but a husband, and that's an article she could have any day. There's some mistake about this, I tell you.' Come, said I, shuddering, let us go and ascertain the truth. Well, well, answered Silas Foster, just as you say. 
We'll take the long pole with the hook at the end that serves to get the bucket out of the draw well when the rope is broken. With that and a couple of long-handled hay-rakes, I'll answer for finding her, if she's anywhere to be found. Strange enough, Zenobia drown herself. No, no, I don't believe it. She had too much sense and too much means, and enjoyed life a great deal too well. When our few preparations were completed, we hastened, by a shorter-than-the-customary route, through fields and pastures and across a portion of the meadow, to the particular spot on the river-bank which I had paused to contemplate in the course of my afternoon's ramble. A nameless presentiment had again drawn me thither after leaving Elliot's pulpit. I showed my companions where I had found the handkerchief, and pointed to two or three footsteps impressed into the clayey margin and tending towards the water. Beneath its shallow verge, among the water-weeds, there were further traces, as yet unobliterated by the sluggish current, which was there almost at a standstill. Silas Foster thrust his face down close to these footsteps, and picked up a shoe that had escaped my observation, being half embedded in the mud. "'There's a kid shoe that never was made on a Yankee last,' observed he. "'I know enough of shoemaker's craft to tell that. "'French manufacture, and see what a high instep, and how evenly she trod in it. "'There never was a woman that stepped handsomer in her shoes than Zenobia did. "'Here,' he added, addressing Hollingsworth, "'would you like to keep the shoe?' "'Hollingsworth started back. "'Give it to me, Foster,' said I. I dabbled it in the water to rinse off the mud, and have kept it ever since. Not far from this spot lay an old leaky punt drawn up on the oozy riverside, and generally half full of water. It served the angler to go in quest of pickerel, or the sportsman to pick up his wild ducks. Setting this crazy bark afloat, I seated myself in the stern with the paddle, while Hollingsworth sat in the bows with the hooked pole, and Silas Foster amidships with a hay-rake. "'It puts me in mind of my young days,' remarked Silas, when I used to steal out of bed to go bobbing for horn-pouts and eels. "'Hey-ho! Well, life and death together make sad work for us all. Then I was a boy bobbing for fish.' and now I'm getting to be an old fellow, and here I be, groping for a dead body. I tell you what, lads, if I thought anything had really happened to Zenobia, I should feel kind of sorrowful. I wish at least you would hold your tongue, muttered I. The moon that night, though past the full, was still large and oval, and having risen between eight and nine o'clock, now shone a slantwise over the river, throwing the high opposite bank with its woods into deep shadow, but lighting up the hither shore pretty effectually. Not a ray appeared to fall on the river itself. It lapsed imperceptibly away, a broad, black, inscrutable depth, keeping its own secrets from the eye of man as impenetrably as mid-ocean could. "'Well, Miles Coverdale,' said Foster, "'you are the helmsman. How do you mean to manage this business?' "'I shall let the boat drift broadside foremost past that stump,' I replied. "'I know the bottom, having sounded it in fishing. The shore on this side, after the first step or two, goes off very abruptly, and there is a pool just by that stump twelve or fifteen feet deep. 
The current could not have force enough to sweep any sunken object, even if partially buoyant, out of that hollow. "'Come then,' said Silas, "'but I doubt whether I can touch bottom with this hay-rake if it's as deep as you say. Mr. Hollingsworth, I think you'll be the lucky man to-night, such luck as it is.' We floated past the stump. Silas Foster plied his rake manfully, poking it as far as he could into the water, and immersing the whole length of his arm besides. Hollingsworth at first sat motionless with a hooked pole elevated in the air, but by and by, with a nervous and jerky movement, he began to plunge it into the blackness that upbore us, setting his teeth, and making precisely such thrusts, methought, as if he were stabbing at a deadly enemy. I bent over the side of the boat. So obscure, however, so awfully mysterious was that dark stream, that, and the thought made me shiver like a leaf, I might as well have tried to look into the enigma of the eternal world to discover what had become of Zenobia's soul, as into the river depths to find her body. And there perhaps she lay with her face upward, while the shadow of the boat, and my own pale face peering downward, passed slowly betwixt her and the sky. Once, twice, thrice, I paddled the boat upstream, and again suffered it to glide with the river's slow, funereal motion downward. Silas Foster had raked up a large mass of stuff, which, as it came towards the surface, looked somewhat like a flowing garment, but proved to be a monstrous tuft of water-weeds. Hollingsworth, with a gigantic effort, upheaved a sunken log. When once free of the bottom it rose partly out of water, all weedy and slimy, a devilish-looking object which the moon had not shone upon for half a hundred years, then plunged again and sullenly returned to its old resting-place for the remnant of the century. "'That looked ugly,' quoth Silas. I half thought it was the evil one on the same errand as ourselves, searching for Zenobia. He shall never get her, said I, giving the boat a strong impulse. That's not for you to say, my boy, retorted the yeoman. Pray God he never has and never may. Slow work this, however. I should really be glad to find something. Pshaw, what a notion that is, when the only good luck would be to paddle and drift and poke and grope hereabouts till morning, and have our labor for our pains. For my part I shouldn't wonder if the creature had only lost her shoe in the mud, and saved her soul alive after all. My stars, how she will laugh at us to-morrow morning! It is indescribable what an image of Zenobia at the breakfast-table, full of warmth and mirthful life, this surmise of Silas Foster's brought before my mind. The terrible phantasm of her death was thrown by it into the remotest and dimmest background, where it seemed to grow as improbable as a myth. "'Yes, Silas, it may be as you say,' cried I. The drift of the stream had again borne us a little below the stump, when I felt—yes, felt, for it was as if the iron hook had smote my breast— felt Hollingsworth's pole strike some object at the bottom of the river. He started up and almost overset the boat. "'Hold on,' cried Foster, "'you have her.' Putting a fury of strength into the effort, Hollingsworth heaved amain, and up came a white swash to the surface of the river. It was the flow of a woman's garments.' 
A little higher, and we saw her dark hair streaming down the current. Black river of death, thou hadst yielded up thy victim. Zenobia was found. Silas Foster laid hold of the body. Hollingsworth likewise grappled with it, and I steered towards the bank, gazing all the while at Zenobia, whose limbs were swaying in the current close at the boat's side. Arriving near the shore, we all three stepped into the water, bore her out, and laid her on the ground beneath a tree. "'Poor child!' cried Foster, and his dry old heart, I verily believe, vouchsafed a tear. I'm sorry for her.' Were I to describe the perfect horror of the spectacle, the reader might justly reckon it to me for a sin and shame. For more than twelve long years I have borne it in my memory, and could now reproduce it as freshly as if it were still before my eyes. Of all modes of death, methinks it is the ugliest. Her wet garments swathed limbs of terrible inflexibility. She was the marble image of a death agony, her arms had grown rigid in the act of struggling, and were bent before her with clenched hands. Her knees, too, were bent, and, thank God for it, in the attitude of prayer. Ah, that rigidity! It is impossible to bear the terror of it. It seemed, I must needs impart so much of my own miserable idea, it seemed as if her body must keep the same position in the coffin, and that her skeleton would keep it in the grave, and that when Zenobia rose at the day of judgment, it would be in just the same attitude as now. One hope I had, and that too was mingled half with fear. She knelt as if in prayer, with the last choking consciousness her soul, bubbling out through her lips, it may be, had given itself up to the father, reconciled and penitent. But her arms, they were bent before her, as if she struggled against providence in never-ending hostility. Her hands, they were clenched in immitigable defiance. Away with the hideous thought, the flitting moment after Zenobia sank into the dark pool, when her breath was gone and her soul at her lips, was as long in its capacity of God's infinite forgiveness as the lifetime of the world. Foster bent over the body and carefully examined it. "'You have wounded the poor thing's breast,' said he to Hollingsworth. "'Close by her heart, too.' "'Ha!' cried Hollingsworth with a start. And so he had, indeed, both before and after death. "'See,' said Foster, "'that's the place where the iron struck her.' It looks cruelly, but she never felt it. He endeavored to arrange the arms of the corpse decently by its side. His utmost strength, however, scarcely sufficed to bring them down, and rising again the next instant, they bade him defiance, exactly as before. He made another effort with the same result. "'In God's name, Silas Foster,' cried I with bitter indignation, "'let that dead woman alone!' "'Why, man, it's not decent,' answered he, staring at me in amazement. "'I can't bear to see her looking so.' "'Well, well,' added he, after a third effort, "'tis of no use, sure enough, "'and we must leave the women to do their best with her "'after we get to the house. "'The sooner that's done, the better.' "'We took two rails from a neighboring fence "'and formed a bier by laying across some boards "'from the bottom of the boat.' 
and thus we bore Zenobia homeward. Six hours before, how beautiful! At midnight, what a horror! A reflection occurs to me that will show ludicrously, I doubt not, on my page, but must come in for its sterling truth. Being the woman that she was, could Zenobia have foreseen all these ugly circumstances of death, how ill it would become her, the altogether unseemly aspect which she must put on, and especially old Silas Foster's efforts to improve the matter, she would no more have committed the dreadful act than have exhibited herself to a public assembly in a badly fitting garment. Zenobia, I have often thought, was not quite simple in her death. She had seen pictures, I suppose, of drowned persons in lithe and graceful attitudes, and she deemed it well and decorous to die as so many village maidens have, wronged in their first love, and seeking peace in the bosom of the old familiar stream, so familiar that they could not dread it, where in childhood they used to bathe their little feet, wading mid-leg deep, unmindful of wet skirts. But in Zenobia's case there was some tint of the Arcadian affectation that had been visible enough in all our lives for a few months past. This, however, to my conception, takes nothing from the tragedy. For has not the world come to an awfully sophisticated pass, when after a certain degree of acquaintance with it we cannot even put ourselves to death in whole-hearted simplicity? slowly slowly with many a dreary pause resting the beer often on some rock or balancing it across a mossy log to take fresh hold we bore our burden onward through the moonlight and at last laid zenobia on the floor of the old farmhouse by and by came three or four withered women and stood whispering around the corpse peering at it through their spectacles holding up their skinny hands shaking their night-capped heads, and taking counsel of one another's experience what was to be done. With those tire-women we left Zenobia. End of chapter 27